0: Good morning. (laughs) Um, We usually have a video at the beginning of our service before anybody gets up and talks, but I'm changing that just a little bit to introduce the video. Uh, We've had visitors who come in and say, look at all the flags. They must be a mission-minded church, and we are. Um, I wanted to bring you a video of some of our missionaries, Bill and Linda Parker. Linda, some of you may know, was the daughter of I.J. Fontenot who was a member of our church for many, many years. Anyway, they have been serving in Central and South America, Hispanic-speaking countries, for many years. Since, I think, 19, uh, 2016, they've come to the home field, and they're serving in the office in their home in, in Texas, where they are mentoring, they're in charge of mentoring applicants for missions uh, to, Hispanic, to the Hispanic world. So I just wanted to let you know what they're about. Pray for them and their needs as well.
1: Howdy, partners. I just had to say that coming to you from Texas. We're Bill and Linda Parker, uh, serving with Avant Ministries. Ever since leaving Uruguay in 2016, we have been uh, working with a recruiting team now called Avant Espanol. We're excited that we're living in an area where our kids live and our nine grandkids. We're anywhere from 20 minutes to three and a half hours from them. Our main ministry uh, has been working with our ministering team that uh, is for Spanish speakers. whom God is calling from literally all over the world to go to unreached parts of the world. Well, there's a phrase that goes, it's no longer from the west to the rest, but it's from everywhere to everywhere. And this is literally true how God is working in the mission world today. And this is also the reason why Linda and I and our team are focusing focusing on this uh, people group.
2: So as Bill mentioned, part of the recruiting team is, we're in charge of the mentoring program. And our job from the beginning was to look for mentors who had had some years of experience on the field. They could speak Spanish well. And the Lord brought together a team of eight mentors. And together we have about... Um, 140 years of experience cross-culturally so um we're just so thankful for that team and and how um, how they love the mentees they spend a lot of time with them the missionary visionary really uh, from Guatemala had um, a desire to see Spanish speakers be able to have some time with a person that they could trust and Whatever label they were on, to be able to talk about their call or why they feel called or what about missions in general. Some had really never even met a missionary personally. And so his idea was to put it, to team up with a mentor um, that would have experience and be able to color the materials that we have um, with their own experiences. And so we get to tell our stories, and that has really helped a lot.
1: When a Spanish speaker contacts our, our mission, they go through a basic uh, filtering process. And then they're invited to be mentored. We are contacted with information, and we contact them. We decide which one of our uh, team mentors will mentor them. There are three uh, aspects or areas that we focus in on when we're mentoring. Um, One is to just to determine where their relationship is with the Lord, and how they're doing in the spiritual disciplines. The second thing uh, that we do is it helps to determine their missionary calling because some people really don't know for sure. And then the, uh, the third would, would be to just help them to understand more about missions, how it works, and what it really means to count the cost of cross-cultural ministries.
2: Mentoring online isn't the most ideal thing, um, but um, we really develop relationships with them and we're able to speak into their lives encourage them and find out, where they're at. Um, so that takes on a period of about four, four months altogether. Just such a privilege to pray together for each one of these that we've come through and we keep praying for them because they're all in different processes in mm. different stages of their life journey. They, so far about 14 couples have come through um, the mentoring program and about uh, 13 singles and we still have some right now. And they're actually from about 14 different countries. The countries they're living in, which could be um, anywhere around the world where they speak Spanish. And this can really be a challenge for our Spanish. You can imagine those of the all that study Spanish, somebody speaking in Spanish and, in Spain and someone down in Ecuador. Uh, we, in Central America, there, there are terms and it's a challenge, but that's where we realize that God is, God is the one that's in this. It's his strength.
1: Another ministry that I have been doing the last year and a half is Marketplace Chaplains. And uh, we are, as chaplain, we're actually invited by companies to come into the workplace. They're called worksite visits, and visit with the employees with the intent of just sharing God's love with them, um, being there for them, getting to getting to know them. Out of the companies that I minister in, uh, most of them have a lot of Hispanics, and it's just it's a joy to to walk, walk into where there's Hispanics and walk up to them and greet them in Spanish and they kind of look surprised. And then when I carry on a conversation with them in their own language, it's, they just really light up and they open up to me. And that's, that's the idea, uh, developing relationships. Uh, and over time, I thank God that I have been able to develop some uh, close relationships where people have actually asked me to pray with them, to share some scripture with them. Some even say, what's the verse for the day, chaplain? It's just really been a, a joy to be able to serve in this way.
2: We're just so appreciative of, of you supporting us in financially and in prayer in every way. And we're just really happy to be a part of your par- this partnership
3: for the gospel.
1: Thank Adios. you so much. Ciao. Good
4: morning. if y'all have seen the table out front.
0: I appreciate you being my caddy, dear.
4: You're welcome, honey. Thanks for bringing me on this dream vacation. The Oceanside Palace Hotel is so nice, and I'm looking forward to the luau.
3: Uh, I think I'm gonna go swim with the fishes.
4: Oh, don't give up, sweetie. You couldn't keep your head down that long anyway.
0: This course is so beautiful. I'd move heaven and earth if I could just break 80.
4: Well, try heaven because you've already moved most of the earth.
0: Mm. Well, I think my game is improving.
4: Yes, yes. You missed the ball much closer now.
0: <sighs> could you please stop checking your watch? It's extremely distracting.
4: Oh, um, it's not a watch. It's a compass.
0: Uh, this isn't even my ball. It's way too old to be my ball.
4: Well, it has been a long time since we teed off. (sighs) Wait, honey. We're only on hole three. You're still going to take me to the luau tonight. Hey, why are you taking the cart? We rode out here together. Well, if you've seen the table out in the foyer, it's decorated in a tropical theme. And our mystery in Maui dinner got canceled last year because of COVID. So we are going to have it again this year, August 13th. And if you've never been to a dinner mystery theater, you uh, have missed out. And it's actually a murder mystery. Everybody that attends will be able to participate in it. Some will participate a little bit more because they will actually be actors in the play. So please sign up. There's a sign-up sheet out out there for you to sign up. We need your name, your phone number, your email, because we're going to be emailing you what you're going to be doing. Um, We just need you to sign up within the next couple of weeks because there is a deadline for this. If you don't sign up by the deadline, you will not be able to participate because there's a lot of planning that goes into it. So um, just need you to sign up this Sunday or next Sunday. I think we're going to go on into one Sunday in August. So just need you to sign up for this by that first Sunday in August. And uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. A lot of people signed up last year. We're really asking if we were going to do it again this year, which we are. So um, I think we'll have a lot of fun at it. Thanks a lot. You're
5: going to do it. Thank you, Sandy. If you're visiting with us today, uh, there's a few little different things are going on, but you can see that, uh, you know, not only are we serious about missions and what we're doing in the world for the, for the Lord, but we also have some fun, okay? And uh, that's, that's going to be a lot of fun, so uh, you make sure that you sign up for that. Uh, our pastor Thad is away today, and I think he's going to be away the next week as well, but uh, just taking some vacation. And so, uh, as, as usual, we, ha- we always have uh, good you know, solid people who are going to come to speak today. So, uh, George Moran, who is, uh, you know, our retired associate pastor, pastor, you know, whatever, whatever we want to call you right there, George, we, uh, um, but he's going to come and speak to us. And, uh, you know, Lord has used just George through the years, uh, so much and used it in, in all of our lives. And, um, uh, uh, if you're if you're visiting here, he was the pastor of uh, Deerfoot Bible Church that was here at this location. And when the two churches merged, then uh, Thad took over as senior pastor, and he was the associate pastor. Uh, but he is now retired. But he's doing much of the same thing, only just doesn't get paid for it. Yeah. So um, he's always thrilled about that one. So. But um, but anyway, but we're here this morning as a group of believers. For nothing more than to worship the Lord God. To worship the Lord Jesus for what he's done in our lives. Uh, because if you're here and you're a believer, then he has sacrificed his life for you. Where we were supposed to be on the cross. We were supposed to be dead in our sins. He took those sins on him. And that, therefore, we took on his righteousness. And so, um, we, we just have so much to be thankful for. And so we want to devote the rest of the service, you know, to him. And, uh, and so let's just get our hearts ready for worship and praise for all that he has done, for all of his creation, for all of his magnificent uh, uh, attributes. We want to praise him for that this morning. Before we start, let's have a word of prayer, maybe. Father, we come to you as a group of believers this morning. Lord, you're here with us, and Father, we're just anticipating the, the time that we spend loving you and honoring you and glorifying you. Father, we have so many things on our minds this week, and it's been a uh, very difficult week in the world, in our country, and even in our personal lives, Lord, there are struggles, uh, there's disappointments, there's anger, there's hate. There are just so many things that are going on. And Father, we're getting to the point now, Lord, where, when we're supposed to always be calling on your name, Lord, but we're getting to the point now we're having to call on your name. Oh, Lord, we just ask you to have mercy on us. Have mercy on our nation, have mercy on our world. Lord, have mercy on us as believers as we go through our life and we are so tempted by the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Lord, help us and guide us through those times. But Lord, you're here for us and you've sent your spirit to indwell us and to to guide us and to teach us in all things and all your things, Lord. So, Father, we gather together today to worship you, to concentrate on you and you alone, to speak well of you in every every way. And, Lord, we come to you to sing, to, to fellowship, to pray, to share God's word, Lord, to share your word that you have given to us. Lord, we just thank you that we have this opportunity. So, Lord, during this time, through the rest of this hour that we spend together, Father, Just show yourself strong. Send your spirit upon this place, Lord, and fill our hearts with your word and your love, Lord. These things we pray in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen. to praise the Lord. His word says, let everything that has life and has breath praise the Lord. And let's do that right now.
3: You made the starry host You traced the mountain peaks You made
5: to God be the glory and great things he yes. seated please I want you to listen to the words of the choir and Sharon as she sings a song it's kind of a song in the first person about how what what Christ has done and how um, how you actually get to heaven the world tells you something else that you already got always got to be doing stuff you know you always got to be doing stuff no that's not what Jesus says no it's a free gift of salvation given to us and we accept it freely and, uh, but anyway, just listen to the words of the choir as they sing. I have come by the way of the cross,
6: condemned to die on a cross. For crimes he had done He was guilty Everyone could see But his destiny was changed As he looked at Christ and said When your kingdom come Remember me In paradise that day he stood Just like the Lord had said he would Surrounded by those who had gone before One said friend how do you come What are the deeds you have done With tears in his eyes I can hear him reply There are no merits to my name that I can claim. He who brought me here taught me to say.
7: I'm not sure I had ever heard that song, but at my age, I'm not sure I've heard any song. (laughs) Let me begin by just uh, expressing uh, both Glenda and myself, our appreciation for the beautiful uh, basket that was delivered to our home. From you, from all of you, and gosh, it had uh, cheese crackers and fruit and candy bars and crawfish. (laughs) No, (laughs) no, no crawfish. But it was just a a, a wonderful uh, load of of goodies. And we've got two apples and one pear left, and it'll all be gone. No, it, it'll take a while. But we do thank you for thinking of us. Uh, we were in Knoxville, uh, Wednesday and Thursday, Friday morning, uh, for Glinda's sister's uh, funeral. Uh, if you would have seen Carolyn, you would have said, that looks like Glinda. They looked a lot alike. Um, Glinda was a little prettier. Uh, but um, after 85 years of, of life, a wonderful ministry with her husband Maynard, and then also after four years of being bedridden and going through a, a very crippling disease of which there's no cure, the Lord uh, mercifully uh, took her home to a better life, to a better place. But the family, uh, they all are on board, it was a celebration, and uh, I just can't imagine people who have to go through this to say goodbye to loved ones who have no hope. Uh, But uh, she was a believer. And so while there was mourning and a little grieving, it's not like those who have no hope because she lives and she's with Christ and one day we will uh, see her uh, again. As we speak of the person of Christ, we've sung about him, Uh, we we speak about him a a lot, and uh, I finally found a story that I'd been looking for for a number of months. Uh, It was a a quote from Dr. W.A. Criswell uh, in Dallas, Texas, pastor of First Baptist Church, and uh, he always, quite frequently, had something of a humorous nature to say to his congregation. But we were in Matthew 16, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And Dr. Criswell said, Jesus one day met these famed, illustrious German theologians, Barth and Tillich and Brunhofer. And he asked them, who do men say that I am? And they responded, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or maybe one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked these illustrious men, but who do you say that I am? And these famed theologians chorused back their learned answer, thou art the ground of being. Thou art the leap of faith into the impenetrable unknown. Thou art the unverbalized, non-propositional confrontation with the infinitude of subjective, coherent experience. And Jesus looked at these men and said, huh? (laughs) Isn't it wonderful that we can go to the scriptures and see a clear picture of who he was The man Christ Jesus, the eternal son who became the incarnate son of God, Jesus Christ, who in obedience to the Father went to the cross and took the burden of our sin and paid all that was owed, so much so that he himself could say, it is finished. And then he died physically and he was put in the tomb. And then on the third day, he arose from the dead. And Christianity is the worship of a living Christ, a living Savior, one who has attained our ticket into heaven. There's no other way to, of entrance except the way of the cross and the finished work of Jesus Christ on behalf of all, but applied only to those who by faith believe that he was the Christ and he did die as our substitutionary payment for our sin. I wanted to just comment also on the great historical uh, political issue that's taken place in the last, uh, uh, last week. And I'm talking about the reversal of the Roe v. Wade decision uh, to uh, end abortion. In all the years that that has been a legal option uh, in our country, uh, they estimate, I don't know, 60 million, 60 to 75 million. Uh, Imagine Legion Field being full to capacity with the upper deck back on it. Imagine that many people in that stadium and that's only a, 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 a small percentage of the reality of how many unborn babies were put to death, some by the, the most cruel of procedures. And there are even people who survived it and are now alive, and they can testify that if they would have had a vote, they would have voted no uh, because of what they went through and endured uh, in terms of, of, of all of that. All right. And so after all these years of praying for God to overrule that, it's done. So what are we going to pray about next? Uh, I thought maybe, it's a little personal, but I thought maybe we could... Pray for an amendment to officially change the colors of our flag to purple and gold. <laughs> no, I, I like the red, white, and blue, and we'll, we'll, we'll keep it there. Our beloved pastor, and he is beloved, we love Thad to death, uh, he, uh, he gets ribbed a little bit about how long it takes him to preach through a book of, of, of scripture. Uh, he... He doesn't want to miss anything. He likes to take it verse by verse. Uh, and so, I decided I would give us, since he's away, I would try to give us a, a change of pace, a, a little treat. I'm going to cover a whole book uh, in, in, in one sermon. And if time permits, after, that, after the book, then I want to look at one verse. And uh, so, you would think I would choose a very small book. But I want to do Romans, and you have a chart that uh, you, hopefully you were given on, I think it's on yellow, yellow paper. And it represents a, a chart, a visualization of this great book that was written by the Apostle Paul uh, to, uh, to the Romans, to the Italians, so to speak. And uh, every book has a theme or should have a theme, and the theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. Everything that Paul says in this book is developing that one theme, the righteousness of God. We sing about it, and who else can you sing about that is as righteous as he? Uh, There is no sin in him. There is no imperfection. And, And that's the very standard by which he will measure each one of us. Do you have my righteousness? And outside of Christ Jesus, the answer is no, 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 no. But I've got a degree from a a Christian school. No. Uh, I've invested 50 years of serving the church as a deacon, as an elder, as a trustee. I've never missed the service. I've never missed the Sunday school class. I visit the sick. I contribute for worldwide missions. No. The only way that we can ever be acceptable to God is to have his righteousness. And the book of Romans is going to talk about that and some things that go along with it. There are five words that summarize the flow of of, Romans. Romans. Uh, sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. I didn't do it, but uh, I didn't do it on your sheet. But on my sheet, uh, the, the, the section on sovereignty, I made it a heavy line. I want that to stand out because we'll, we'll see it in a minute. That's a significant portion of the book. So much so that a lot of people who read the book, they don't understand how that fits. It just, it's almost like Paul just interrupts himself at the end of chapter 8 and goes into this uh, uh, boo-hoo about his own people and how they're on the outside looking in and, uh, you know, what happened. Why aren't the Jews enjoying what we Gentiles are enjoying, salvation, and all the benefits of the new covenant that was ratified by his death on the cross? Uh, the Jewish people today, the ones that are still religious, most of them are agnostic at best. They they say I don't believe there's a god. Not not with all I've seen in my life, and not what happened to my grandparents in World War II and on and on and on. There are a lot of people that wonder did God uh, renege? Did God go back on his word when he dumped Israel? Has God taken us to be the new Israel? And by the way, that, is, that, that represents 90% of the evangelical church in the world today. They think that God is through with the nation Israel, and we are the new Israel, the church. And we are a spiritual body. We don't have a headquarters like the Baptists have Nashville and uh, the, the Lutherans have Louisville or... Anyway, uh, the Catholics have Rome. Uh, we don't have a city we can claim as our capital. Jesus reigns through, over his church through the hearts of his people. Uh, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not here to talk about that, but uh, just to, we'll see that in just a minute. But when he talks about sin, it relates to righteousness because he's saying that is the absence of righteousness. Man has a problem man is depraved man is separated from his creator because of sin and that goes all the way back to adam and ever since father to child father to child father to child father father to child that sin has been passed on you have it you say well uh I I didn't sin until I was 14. Well, now you sinned again. You lied. Uh, But let's say that you didn't sin. Let's say you're here today and you've never sinned one day in your life. Guess what? You are still under the judgment of Adam's sin. For all have sinned, the Scriptures say, and come short of the glory of God. So from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20... Paul is talking about the absence of righteousness. I forgot. I've got some goodies here. There we go. There's my theme. There's my chart. Maybe you can see it better than I can. Look at the one... You've got in your lap, but from chapter one verse eighteen to chapter three verse twenty, Paul will first of all show that Gentiles are condemned, and and really, you don't have to tell that to the Gentiles. We know we're condemned. We know what we are. But then in chapter two, he says that oh, you Jews who think you're so high and mighty, you too are condemned. Oh, but we, we follow the law. We keep the law. You are condemned by, of sin, of Adam's sin. And then he comple- completes his argument in, in chapter 3, and he talks about how sin is universal. We've all sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God day after day after day. If there's a key verse to that section, it would be chapter 3, verse 10. And he quotes, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. So, the beginning of his book, he's talking about sin. He's reminding us, or he's arguing that righteousness is absent from creation, and therefore creation is depraved and under the judgment of God, hopelessly. But then the next section we'll talk about salvation. The availability of that righteousness. How do you get it? If that's what you have to have, how do you get it? And he talks about the deliverance for the creature. And first he will illuminate the doctrine of justification. We've been justified by faith. And that word to justify means to declare righteous. And when we believed in Christ, God declared us righteous. It's a judicial verdict. We're still sinful. We still have the old body, but we also have a new body. We're a new creature in Christ. We have two natures. And he'll talk about in chapter 7 how that struggle goes on every day. You know, when you walk around and you see a sign... Don't touch wet paint. What's the first thing you want to do? You want to touch it. Keep off the grass. Dogs hate those kind of signs. (laughs) When they see one, they just go go bananas. (laughs) But it's in our nature to rebel. And it is only the Spirit of God dwelling in us. That we have an option to say no to the flesh, and we can say yes to the Spirit. And when we are led by the Spirit, we, it produces the fruit of the Spirit. When we are led by the flesh, we produce the deeds of the flesh. And Galatians makes them vividly uh, clear and uh, repulsive. But he illuminates just justification, he illustrates the doctrine of justification. By using two men, he'll refer to Abraham and he'll refer to King David. The two giants, they are on the Mount Rushmore of Israel. And you look at Abraham and they say, Well, if anybody could have earned his way to heaven, it's Abraham. I mean, he's our George Washington. Look what he did. He gave up everything and left Ur and he came to a new land and settled in and he had to fight the Canaanites and the Ammonites and the Jebusites and the Termites and, and everything. He is the man. Paul says, "But well, what do the scriptures say? And he refers to the point where God told him that you're going to have a son. You know, I'm an old man, and my wife, she's not too much younger. But Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It was his faith that gave him righteousness, not his works. Well, okay, but what, let's look at King David. And there's a guy. Well, actually, David, I like the guy. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. David was my king. But, uh, boy, he made some bad mistakes. I mean, he lusted after a woman so much, so badly, that he had her husband murdered so that he could take her as his wife. Now, you know what the law said would happen to a man who did that? The law said he'd be stoned to death. But God, in his mercy, did not extract that against David. Scriptures also say David was a man after God's own heart. He had a passion for David, for God. Read the Psalms, and you'll see the fullness of his heart and his love for God. But he had a human passion. Body, he had a human nature, and he could disobey when he didn't have his eyes on on his father. And so, both men illustrate the fact that salvation better be by faith, because that's what God says about Abraham. His works couldn't do it, and David is saying, "Thank God it's by faith, because if it's by deeds, I'm a dead duck." After what I've done, David praises the God who doesn't impute sin. Amen. This thing is either growing through my ear, or, 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 or oh, it came off my ear. Okay, I see. I think I'm okay now. All right. So uh, that's that's salvation. It's available in Christ Jesus. It will bring deliverance to the creature. And if there are key verses in that section, wait a minute, I went too fast. One would be chapter 3, verse 21, and a part of 22. He says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Boy, those are sweet words. Righteousness is available. But Lord, I'll never be able to, to attain to it. I've tried, I've tried. And I've just, that's not me. I'm a sinful creature. But Paul says, apart from the law, meaning apart from works, the righteousness of God is available. It's being witnessed, and it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Those who put their faith and trust in Christ, they are imputed with the righteousness of God so that now God will always accept me because I have his righteousness. I didn't earn it. I didn't buy it. I didn't steal it. He gave it to me as a gift when I put my trust in his son. Well, that leads us to the third section. But we're really cruising. We're already in uh, in, in chapter 8 now. We're going to chapter 6. Sin, salvation, sanctification. Uh, Oh, there's another key word for that section I forgot. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, and just, well, I should have, Having been justified by faith, and to be justified means to be declared righteous. So having been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have peace with God. Never again will you have to lay on your pillow wondering, if I die tonight, where will I go? If I have to stand before the God of heaven, will he condemn me? Will he reject me? The answer is no, never, never, never. He will never condemn you. He will never reject you. He took your sin, and through his son, he paid the penalty that was owed to a righteous holy father. And now, because of your faith in him, he's given you his righteousness which is the only way any of us can ever have hope of eternal life with God. And so, beginning in chapter 6 now, he talks about the uh, sanctification, sin, salvation, sanctification, or the advantages of righteousness. Now that I have his righteousness... Is there any advantage to me as an earthling? I'm still a mortal, born again. I have a new nature, but I still have that old nature. What's the advantage of having the righteousness of God? Well, he will start by expressing uh, the, 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 the new principle. And the new principle is that now you can live free from the power of sin. You've been freed from the penalty of sin, but now you can live free from the power of sin. And he will eventually bring in uh, the, the person of the Spirit of God. He'll talk about the struggle between the old man and the, the new man. And he'll explain the new power that's available in chapter 8 and the expectation of the believer that now you can live a righteous, holy life you could be righteous in your conduct as a human, born-again Christian because you had the Spirit of God living in you. And when He controls you, He produces righteousness. If there's a key verse to that section, in chapter 8, verse 3 and 4, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, what could the law not do? Because of the weakness of the flesh. The law could not be obeyed. The law could not produce righteousness in me. Because I couldn't obey it. Oh, I might obey this this rule, this rule, this rule. But just be patient. Sooner or later, I'll stumble. I'll fail. I'll fall. And the law wasn't. Designed to make people righteous. The law was designed to show them that they're not righteous. And there is no hope apart from God doing something for you. And that something was to come as the man Christ Jesus and go to the cross and take upon himself the sins of the world. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can't explain it theologically. I, I guess I'm supposed to be able to. but And I didn't skip the class. I wanted to listen to my professor. And you know what he told me? He couldn't explain it either. But somehow, somehow, the, the fellowship and the eternal union between the God the Father and God the Son became interrupted. It's almost as though God just turned his back on the sun and said, You represent sin, and I must judge you by rejecting you. It only lasted about three hours. That shows how infinitely valuable Christ was. He was not just an innocent man. An innocent man could have atoned for one guilty man. But he was atoning for all men. Meaning male, female, adult, child, whatever. Even pre-born babies whose lives are cut short. You ever think of that? Where are those 60 million pre-born babies who are destroyed? They're in the presence of Jesus. Can we know that? Well, a little little logic won't, won't hurt. Christ died for all, right? So in the case of those who are incapable of believing, as a sovereign God, he is free to apply the benefits of his son's death to those people. So whether it be an unborn baby or whether it be a child who's born but has emotional and mental defect and he cannot comprehend and reason and understand right from wrong that child is provided for and so where are all these people there in, in heaven so while satan's trying to destroy them <laughs> he may know it or may not know it but he's filling up the the, the the seats in heaven all these these young children they've been provided for by a loving god who died for them too And they're not able to believe, so God doesn't require that they believe. He applies the benefits of his son's death to them, judicially. And they are brought into the presence of God. But the advantage of righteousness is that now you can be delivered from the power of sin. You don't have to keep living the old way. And most of us are illustrations of that. Most of us, uh, probably, if, 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 if you have people that knew you way back when, they'd say, what happened to you? You used to go with us to the bars, and, and you cussed like a sailor, and you had your, your mind on, on uh, the ladies and, and the ponies and whatever else. Well, you're not that way anymore. What happened to you? Well, you can tell them. Christ came into my life. And I'm a changed person. And God wants that. He's glorified by that. He's glorified by us now living by a a different level. And it's based on the presence of the Spirit of God in our life. Now you would think that at the end of chapter 8, Paul would would immediately go to chapter 12. Because at the end of chapter 8, he concludes... And chapter 8 is just a, a, it will take Thad about six years to to get through it. But it will be worth it. It will be worth it. Paul concludes by saying, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. Now all of that is his way of saying, I'm convinced that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You've got security. You belong to God forever, whether you like it or not. <laughs> you may have to go to heaven kicking and screaming, but you're going. That's, that's who you are now, and it can't be changed. God can't put you back into the spiritual birth canal and unborn you any more than God could take a physical child and put it back into the mother's womb and unborn that. Once the birth takes place, it's final. It can't be changed. Now, you can decide whether you want to be an obedient child and receive blessing or a disobedient child and get disciplined. Israel the last 2,000 years as a nation has been under discipline. They haven't been eradicated. God didn't say I'm sick of you. I'm going to go find me another people. God says you're my people but you're sinful. You rejected my son that I brought sent to you. 2,000 years but in chapter 11 Paul reminds us that the day will come when he will bring them back and thus All Israel shall be saved in chapter 11. But we come to this section, chapters 9, 10, and 11, where it just doesn't seem to fit. Because if you would go immediately to chapter 12, uh, after 9, 10, and 11, he says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The natural bridge from sanctification would be service. But he puts in this thing that we're calling sovereignty. And I think he's bringing these three chapters into his book because he feels that somebody has to defend the righteousness of God. Is he really righteous after what he did to Israel? His covenant people? The people that he said, you would be my people for all time? The covenant where he told Abraham to take a nap and he by himself walked between the pieces of the sacrifice signifying that this covenant is unilateral. It doesn't depend on anything Abraham does or his descendants. It depends on what I do. And evidently these reformed theologians feel that God's an Indian giver. They must somehow feel that God says, well, you know, you shouldn't have done that. By the way, if sin violated the covenant, why did he wait until 33 A.D.? What about when Israel was disobeying in the wilderness while Moses is up on the mountain getting the law and they're building a golden calf and having a good old time? What about in Egypt when they would constantly be tempted to pursue the, the Egyptian gods? What about in their own land, when they begin to worship Babylonian gods instead of the God of Israel, there are so many times when God could have said, okay, the deal's off, the deal's off. Why, why does he wait until the cross to say the deal's off? He, he didn't destroy his promise to those people. He postponed the fulfillment of the promise to those people. Well, not to those people, but to a future generation. In chapter eleven, he even talks about how, you know, Gentiles or wild branches and the natural branches have been taken out of the tree. The tree wasn't dug up; the branches were taken out. Wild branches were grafted in. The Gentiles. If God can do that, why can't God one day regraft in the natural branches? Because you see, the key is not the branches; the key is the root. And we don't support the root. The root supports us. If there's a key verse, well, I, I, I've given you that one, but we come into to chapter 9. God, Paul is defending his dispensational dealings of the nation Israel. He's defending what he's done. He hasn't cut them off forever. He's put them under discipline But there will be a day when he will bring back the covenant nation. Not every Jew. But he will bring back a remnant. And to them, Christ will return to establish himself as their Messiah and the King of Kings. In chapter 9, he talks about Israel's past election. Um, Let me... Hold that for a minute. Chapter 9 is all about God's election of Israel. And he says, he didn't elect every Jew, but Paul says, I'm I'm one. And there there are others. There's a whole bunch of us who, as Jews, we've put our faith in Christ. So, you know, God is, is choosing a remnant from among the whole. He's always done that. When, when Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, one was the chosen. The other one was not. Election is probably one of the most difficult of all subjects. And it's, again, it's one of those things that you talk to ten people and you probably get ten different opinions about what election really means. But I, I have just really enjoyed uh, reading some of the things that Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote Uh, 150 years ago or more. And this is what he says about election. He says many people want to know their election before they look to Christ. And and that's the problem. We want to know all about the doctrine before we know anything about it. (laughs) They cannot learn it thus. It is not only to be discovered by looking unto Jesus. uh, It can only be discovered Look to Jesus, believe on him, and you shall make proof of your election directly. For as surely as you believe, you are elect. See, believers have no problem with election. I believe. I know I'm elect. I've been born again. I have, I have my eternal life with, with Christ. No question about that. If you're an unbeliever and you're wondering about whether or not you're elect, you know how simple it is to, to solve that problem? Trust Christ. Trust Christ. Put your faith and trust in Christ, and you become elect. Leave the details to the angels or whoever wants to talk about it. He said, go to Jesus as you are. Go straight to Christ. Hide in his wounds, and you shall know your election. Christ was at the everlasting council. He can tell you whether you were chosen or not, but you cannot find out in any other way. Go and put your, your trust in him. There will be no doubt about his having chosen you when you have chosen him. I think that's pretty good advice. If you're here today and you never put your trust in Christ, and you're thinking, well, how do I know if I'm elect or not? Put your trust in Christ, and then start growing in Christ, and you'll just see how much God has loved you from eternity past. And now He has indeed chosen you. And now you are privileged to have the Spirit dwelling you now. And one day you'll dwell with Him for all eternity. Chapter 9 focuses on Israel's past election. Chapter 10 focuses on their present rejection. See, the problem is, is Israel itself in many ways. Because Uh, Chapter 10 says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Uh, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Israel had a zeal for God. That wasn't being questioned. But he says, not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. When they rejected Christ, they rejected righteousness. And they said, we have our own system. Thank you anyway. Well, their own system doesn't produce righteousness. It produces self-righteousness, but it doesn't produce God's righteousness. The only way to have God's righteousness is to have it as a gift when you trust Christ. If you say, well, I don't take anything as a gift. I earn everything I have. Well, then you you have earned hell. Because the just punishment for self-righteousness is to be separated from God and for Christ for all eternity. Non-believers have eternal life, by the way. It's just eternal life separated from God and anything about Him. It's... Everlasting darkness and torment. As far as I can tell, what uh, do you call it when you put in that, that cell? It's not going to be a party. We're not going to say, hey oh, we got a bunch of us here. Good to see you, Frank. You, no, we're not going to know who else is there. All we're going to know is I'm there for eternity. And no grace, no mercy, no nothing. Is that just? Well, He gave you an alternative, and you said no. There's a key verse for all this. I bear them witness they have a zeal for God. We just read that. But not according with knowledge. Not knowing about God's righteousness. And that doesn't mean they had never heard it. It's not knowing in the sense of not experiencing it. Not accepting it. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. The next verse, by the way, says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So that's part of the problem. And in chapter 11, he talks about how God will one day restore them. Zechariah says, one day they shall mourn the one whom they pierced. They shall say, he is the Christ. We rejected him. We crucified him. We said, we have no king but Caesar. But we're wrong. He is God's grace to us. Now, it won't be the ones that that crucified him, but that generation, when Christ comes, that generation of Jews will cry out, they will mourn the one whom they pierced. They rejected the cornerstone of their faith. And finally we come to service. Let's get back on track, Paul says, chapter 12. Let's apply righteousness, the application of righteousness, or the display of character. And in chapter 12 he talks about the, the Christian assembly, how we, we should love one another, display our Christian character to one another. We are righteous people. Let's live righteously. That means we love one another and we care for one another. We value one another. Then he applies, uh, applies it to civil authority. Righteousness says obey government. Now, not when they tell you to, to do something Contrary to the law of God. But we are citizens of a government. Maybe we ought to think twice about who we put in in leadership over us. Because we are now expected to submit to that leadership. It's kind of crazy that we put idiots in office. And then all we do is complain about them. I'm not going to do what that jerk says. Or that woman says. Well then why did you elect them? Let's elect people that reflect our values that will remind us of who we are. We we are Christians, and our citizenship ultimately is heaven. This is just a temporary place where we are here. He'll apply it to confusing activities. Some call it doubtful things. That's an issue where the Scriptures don't really say whether or not it's right or wrong, and so, therefore, you take the, the, liber- the liberty to, to, to partake of that glass of wine with your meal if you choose to. Somebody else says, uh-uh, uh your Christians aren't supposed to be doing that. Well, Paul tries to show how to harmonize that. There are strong Christians and there are weaker Christians. Weaker Christians tend to be legalists. They think that everything is about rules, 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 rules. And and walking with the Lord is not about rules. It's about relationship. By the way, you make a lot of decisions without ever talking to God about it, if if you'll be honest. I like that shirt, David. Did you pray this morning and ask God whether you should wear that one or wear the the red one or or the green one? No. you, you, You knew that that would fit and it was conservative. Wasn't wild. And so, and, and she said, "I like it." And so, you put it on. Women, you pick the dress. You pick one out of maybe four that you have, but all four are are um, conservative. Uh, they conform to the issue of morality. You know, uh, it's not it's not going to be too tight or too short. And so, in that in that case, God says, "Wear the one you like." Uh, it's like being on a ship. You can go to this deck and this deck and this deck and this deck. You can go, in, you can go anywhere you want on the boat. Uh, our captain told us, he said, you're free to go anywhere on all these decks, but don't go here and don't go there. So as long as we were staying on the, the decks, it didn't matter if we went to the front of the boat or the back of the boat. Uh, on and on and on. Key verse, Romans 12, 1. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. When you present your body to God as a holy sacrifice, you are worshiping him. When you desecrate your body, That's not worship. Uh, But he wants us to serve him. That's what righteousness does. Why give us righteousness if we don't want to conform to it and let it be our goal, our, 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 our mold that we push our life through? I want to be righteous in all that I think and all that I do because that's who I am. I am righteous in his sight because he's a God of grace and he saved me through Jesus Christ. Well, that's Romans. Sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, service. The absence of righteousness, the availability of righteousness, the advantages of righteousness, the attestation of righteousness concerning God, why God is doing what he's doing with Israel, and the application of righteousness or the display of character in our lives. And having done all that, I want you to notice what he says. Well, there we go. In chapter 1, verse 1, he begins the book saying, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Isn't it interesting as Paul describes himself to his reader? It's interesting that there are things about him that he doesn't tell us. For instance, if we were to go to Acts 22, verse 3, there... He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, Gamaliel, who's one of the great, great rabbis, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for, for God, just as you are all today. And I persecuted this way. That's what he calls the Christian faith. It was called the way. I persecuted this way to the death. Binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. That's the kind of man Paul was. Galatians chapter 1. You've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. He admits it. I wanted to destroy the Christian faith. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But something happened to Paul, or Saul as he was called then, He finally met Jesus on the Damascus Road. Acts chapter 8 or 9, one of those. And that was the day his life changed. And he stopped being Saul the persecutor and he became Paul the proclaimer. And he was called by God as an apostle and his ministry was to go to the Gentiles. He was set apart to the Gentiles to preach the gospel of God which is the gospel of grace. Not the gospel of here's what you got to do to go to heaven, but the gospel of here's who you got to know to go to heaven. You got to know my son. You got to know what he did for you. He died in your place. He took your sin, and God punished it completely. And now you can be free. He says, I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith, which he once tried to destroy. And they were skeptical. You know, what is this? Is this his way of trying to infiltrate, to pretend to be one of us? But it was true. He really was the one who stopped persecuting the way And was chosen to proclaim the way. All the way to Rome. Where he ended up in prison. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That word bondservant is a simple word, doulos. And it doesn't mean that you're in charge of the kitchen at someone's home. Or that you take care of the, the, the grass and the bushes. This was an indentured slave. Somebody who owed and couldn't pay. And so they would work for that person as a way of trying to work off their debt. But the law gave, uh, gave grace in that in this situation, a, a man who was in debt, after six years, the law says you have to set him free. And he owes nothing. He walks away clean. But, uh, and this is all in Exodus 21, he said, but if, ma- if the man s- plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God, and then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and I don't mean making a hole just big enough for a little thing to hang in there, it meant drilling a hole." Through his earlobe, pierce his ear with an all, and he shall serve him permanently. If you said, I don't want to leave, I love my master. He's been good to me, and I'll serve him till I die. Well, they drilled a hole in his ear public, publicly, and that man was still known as a servant of somebody. But they said, but not because he has to. He's a servant because he wants to. That was Paul. Paul says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, but not because I have to. He says, I'm a servant because I want to. I have finally met that man that I persecuted. I have finally met the man who was the the, the leader of the way, and I found that that's the way I want to go. And Paul thought it, it was his greatest joy in life, To be a servant of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about that? Are you a servant of Christ? A bond servant? Do you do what you do because you're afraid you'll go to hell if you don't? Are you afraid that God just won't won't be, be pleased and he won't give you the same reward that somebody else will get? What motivates you to serve and identify yourself as a Christian? I hope that your motivation is I love it. I love knowing Him. I love being a part of the body of Christ. That defines my life. That's who I am. Now, I'm not hoarding, I'm not holed up in seclusion. I'm going out there where where they are, and I'm being a witness and a testimony to them that they too can become a part of the way. They too can be servants of Christ and have the joy of knowing Him and serving Him. And having that living hope that one day we'll see him face to face. Wow. I can't think of anything greater. George Beverly Shea, I remember when he used to tour with Billy Graham, and he would always sing one song in particular. You remember it? I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Do you live your life that would give the impression that you love this world or that you love Christ. And you'd rather have Jesus than any other thing. Let me close by asking you a question. Two questions. First question is, is there anything in your life that you love more than Jesus Christ. Now, don't you don't have to tell me. Tell yourself. Think about it. Is there anything in this life that you love more than Jesus Christ? And if there is, the second question is why? Because anything other than Jesus Christ is temporal. You're going to lose it in this world. You can't take it with you. It's going to be destroyed by intense heat. The only thing that will bridge into eternity is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Love him and please God. And uh, that's my prayer for all of us. Our Heavenly Father, who art in heaven, Indeed, hallowed be your name. And Father, may we always live only to worship and to honor and to serve you. May we see our calling and joyfully and gratefully choose to do it, whatever it may be. May we live so as to leave no doubt that while we once belonged to the world, Now we belong to God and Jesus, and He belongs to me. In our Savior's name I pray. Amen.
5: Thank you, George. We appreciate you coming and being with us today and and sharing in Thad's absence. Um, If you're here today and. and you've really struggled with this area of salvation, and uh, that's about the clearest I think uh, explanation you're going to ever hear right there. And if you're watching by uh, live stream, if anybody has any anything, any questions or anything about that, please come forward and talk. There's a number of people who you know will talk to you. And if you're joining us by live stream, just contact the church here, we will hook up with you somewhere, and we'll. You know, certainly explain that to you. But thank you, George, uh, for that message. I would like to uh, maybe close out with just a little something a little different than we normally do. Uh, we're going to sing a hymn, and it's written by a guy named Thomas Ken. It's kind of weird. It's like a like the last name first, first name last. You know, Thomas Ken. Um, he's actually not a hymn writer. He was um, he was really the royal chaplain of a of a, a Winchester College at Oxford University is back in 1600. Young people, you love those, don't you? The 1600 songs. Uh, But anyway, uh, but it's, uh, he actually wrote this, but he actually, uh, the the students that were there in Winchester College were kind of rowdy, and uh, so he was trying to come up with a way to to help them and, uh, you know, through the day. And so he said, okay, I'm going to write a hymn for the morning. So he says, "He said, what we need to do is you need to wake up in the morning singing. And then he says, and then you need to go to bed at night, you need to go to bed at night singing. So he wrote a hymn for, for the morning, it was about 13 to 14 verses. Then he wrote one for, the, for nighttime, when they went to bed. He says, you know, you can go to bed singing this song. Later on, they came something and said, well, what do we do when we can't sleep at night? And It's about midnight or something like that. We can't sleep. So he wrote a hymn for midnight. So he's, so he's really known for three hymns, you know, for one for the morning, one for night, and one for midnight. But every single one of these hymns ended the same way, ended with the same verse. And it goes something like this. Go ahead and throw that up there, Ron. It says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. You know, we sang about that a little while ago. Let everything that has life and breath praise the Lord. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Even the heavenly host of, of, of heaven, we should praise him. And we should praise the Father, we praise the Son, and we praise the Holy Ghost. The whole Godhead we praise. And that's what it's all about. And that's what our lives need to be as we go through this uh, this week so uh let's all stand <clears throat> all you older folks will know this song younger folks learn it it's a great song because it will be with us forever and it has been so let's sing this together maybe.
3: praise god from whom all blessings flow praise him him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son and
5: Holy Ghost. Let's add the amen. 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 Thank you. Dismissed. Have a good day.